0: This podcast is a collaboration between Aftonbladet Kultur and the Institute for Future Studies, an interdisciplinary research institute that focuses on the possibilities and threats humanity has to handle, now and in the future. Knowledge and critical reflection make for better decisions. Follow our research at iffs.se.
1: Welcome to a new episode of The New World, a podcast made by Aftonbladet Kultur in collaboration with the Institute for Future Studies. My name is Karin Pettersson. I'm here with my co-host Georg Dietz.
0: Yes, and this is a podcast that uh, looks for new ideas uh, in democratic thinking, how to maybe rebuild this world, as we say, from the ground up, um, and we invite interesting. Relevant and new voices to this program. This time we met uh, Astra Taylor, who I've known actually since 2011. What happened in 2011? Where were you, Karin? What What happened in your life?
1: <laughs> well, I was in Stockholm trying to analyze uh, and write about the effects of the financial crisis, as uh, many of us did at the time. But you were in. Uh, New York, lower Manhattan, out. I was of with... course
0: protesting uh, in New York, I and mean, you know protesting. me i'm yeah. i'm the guy, so you're if, the uh,
1: activist yeah and that's well, where you I met was... with
0: yeah that's where I met Esther Taylor I was of of course not an activist i I was and still am a journalist, as you know, so there's a clear <laughs> line between journalism and activism, as we all know, so I was covering the Occupy Wall Street protest that uh, really sort of changed me and I think a lot of people and um Astra Taylor was very instrumental in that uh, protest movement, and that's, um, I think, still something that I find relevant in her thinking about democracy, how to really sort of start it um, from scratch. So that's actually what happened at Occupy in in a lot of ways. uh, With all the difficulties, as it turned out, um, you can't just uh, rebuild it without sort of falling into the same traps in some way, it seems.
1: And we talked uh, to Astra Taylor about the book um democracy may never exist, but you will miss it when it's gone. And I think it was an interesting discussion because it goes back to Occupy Wall Street, it goes back to what happened these last 10 years, but it also, and it's, I think she points to the fact that many of the policy discussions, but also discussion around democracy and who's included in the, in the, in the us, in the we, um, the ideas we're having now about that are going back to um, the what started with Occupy Wall Street and maybe the fallout after the, the financial crisis. So was an in, it was an interesting discussion, I think. And about Athens, them.
0: of course, Athens. What?
1: Also and Athens, of course. So yeah. both it goes back 10 years, but also 2000 Two, years. Yeah.
0: But I think it's interesting to, to rethink that financial crisis, also from the perspective of today, um, and that's also in the conversation, this interesting aspect of how, I think, the thinking about climate change or climate crisis uh, changed the way um, uh, one thinks about the horizon or the, of, of time in democracy and democracy, and how the future generations or the interests of the future generations need to be addressed and represented. So, as to, to your point, it, it, it's a constant, and I think that's a very interesting story of democracy, or that's the story that she tells. That it's always growing, it's always expanding, it's always it's 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 it's, it's more um, it's including more and more people. Mm. And and not only people now it's also inclu- including um, nature, animals, time, uh, and at some point everything. So that's that's the horizon that we're talking about. So um,
1: let's listen to it I, or let's uh, I, let's play it.
0: I really enjoyed the conversation <laughs> and let's uh, let's listen to it. Um, enjoy. Welcome, uh, Astra.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Sure. Um, we actually go quite uh, back. Uh, so, 2011, we met in, in New York uh, it, at Occupy Wall Street. And, and in some way, not to sound too veteran, but I think it's interesting for our conversation to, in some way, revisit that moment to understand not only the 10 years that were between, but the, the reservoir of ideas that, that might have sprung up then. Um, so, maybe the, the first Approach to tackle this complex and difficult subject, democracy, that that we might try to tackle together today and work through a bit, is really um, what's there still around from from back uh, 2011 that 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 you find relevance of in 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 looking both back and ahead.
2: It's it's really interesting to me that we're even talking about Occupy Wall Street because it's now 10 years, right? Occupy Wall Street was 2011. Now we're talking in 2021. And in those early days of that movement, I had no idea what the legacy would be, what the consequences of it would be. And in fact, there were a lot of reasons to be skeptical of Occupy Wall Street. I mean, it was not exactly the most strategic idea. You know, let's camp in a little park in Wall Street. And also the Occupy Wall Street movement refused to make demands of the state. It essentially had the position that making demands of the state was a kind of validation of a political system that was deeply flawed. And so the, the idea was essentially, you know, that we would say we would sort of make demands that exceed the ability of the state to even fulfill them. So it was very, you know, utopian, Um, It was mostly focused on almost sustaining the encampment. So there was food, there were libraries. And yet it had this hugely transformative impact on American politics. And, And that's, you know, and what it did was it injected inequality and class into the American political conversation. And those concepts had been so absent. I mean, it was this jolt to the culture at that moment. And that, you know, for me was enough because I had spent my 20s, you know, in this, uh, in during the aught. So it was the George W. Bush years, uh, the war on terror, there were no political movements. It just felt like, um, you know, a very dark time, a very apolitical time. There was no discussion of economics, you know, of capitalism. And so for me, the fact that there was this protest that was trying to call attention to these economic issues was enough. (laughs) It was enough for me to sort of join and and figure, you know, I might as well participate in this. Um, I didn't, I certainly didn't expect it to have the larger consequences it had. And those consequences were, you know, I think they weren't direct. What it did was it opened the space, it put class back on the table, um, and... Uh, definitely you know, has pulled the Democratic Party uh, to the left in really powerful ways that we can discuss. Um, and then there are some tangible outcomes of that period, too. So, for example, I organized with a group called the Debt Collective, which is a union for debtors. And that's a direct offshoot of the Occupy Wall Street movement. We literally got our start there. That's where the founders met. And what we realized was that many of the people who came to Occupy were there because they were in debt, <laughs> So it was, of course, the financial crisis. So many people were, had lost their homes, so they had been foreclosed upon. But people also had student debt, medical debt. Because they weren't being paid enough and still aren't being paid enough, they were using credit cards they were borrowing. Um, and that people were drowning. They are financially drowning. And so we had this idea that we would build a union for debtors. And what we've done over the last 10 years is really put the idea of debt cancellation, especially student debt cancellation on the agenda. Joe Biden ran on student debt cancellation. We have um, managed through debt strikes and other tactics to erase almost $3 billion, So that's with a B, $3 billion of debt belonging to tens of thousands of people. So that's a very direct consequence You know that we have helped people get out of these um, predatory and life-destroying financial contracts. But you know, the ripples are still being felt. I think we're we're still in this moment because we're in another financial crisis. So it's you know no longer 2008. Now we're in the COVID pandemic, and I think you see that we are responding to it differently. It's not my ideal. I think there's a lot that should be done differently. But in a way, I think because of Occup- largely because of Occupy and the criticisms Occupy raised, we are responding uh, differently this time around.
0: So I, I think it's interesting to, on the one hand, look at... And for me, it was really a politicizing moment. And, and uh, we had this discussion before, Karen and I, that I think for Karen, who has a much more political past, maybe it wasn't so important, actually, as as for me. I, I come from this similar position that, that I was thrown into this politicized environment coming out of the, like a, a numbness, I guess, of the odds in, in some mm-hmm. way. But, but I think listening to you and maybe, maybe that is also a tension between karen and me is so sort of you talk about policy and 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 then there's also structure and then your book so if you you talk about structure very much so sort of how the, what are the fundamentals of how the system could 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 change and shift and i think we, sh- we will get into that later because that's what i'm interested in and karen sometimes gets annoyed with that, that so sort of she says well what is what are the concrete solutions i'm, I'm saying what are the sort of utopian potentials that you that can explore so that is the inherent tension, but it's also in Occupy Wall Street and some, because you say that these are really important sort of things to remember, I think, about Occupy, but actually it didn't change much in terms of structure yet, or did it? That's mm-hmm. of, um, maybe Sunrise Movement or maybe the, 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 the Justice Democrats is is a direct consequence of that. Maybe it did change more yeah. underneath, actually.
2: Yeah, I think it. well, it's this question of Demands. So, what I said about Occupy refusing to make a demand. So, you know, Occupy didn't want to say, we demand money out of politics or we demand the end of the electoral college or all these things you could say in the American political context that would be improvements. Um, And I came out of that moment and, you know, well, I want to win. (laughs) I want to build power. I want to make demands. Um, And so, I, you know, that's why. I work with the Debt Collective and we make demands. We make demands for the cancellation of all student debt and the Uh, advancement of free public college for everybody. But I definitely think the groups you mentioned, Justice Democrats and Sunrise Movement, they also learned from Occupy Wall Street. I actually interviewed one of the founders of the Sunrise Movement a while ago. And, you know, she was a teenager, but she was just enwrapped by Occupy Wall Street. And so the movement was very galvanizing for them. What they saw was that something so small, just an encampment in a park, could catch the attention of the country and the world and they wanted to harness some of that that utopian spirit some of that uh, radical energy but couple it with something a bit more strategic that would also be about changing policies so they have a their ideas that you need to build people power which is the power of you know protest but also political power so also be very strategic about how you engage with the state so i think this is the thing is movements you know ideally keep iterating and learning from each other and improving on what's come before, right? So I think what Occupy did though was it opened this really critical space because I was a very political person. I hung out on the left. I knew every leftist in New York City, you know, but we what, we wrote articles and we read philosophy. What Occupy did was it created a meeting space where suddenly I met all these people who wanted to organize a union you know, who wanted to build economic power and engage in campaigns that would be about um, actually trying to experiment with the tactics and theories we were, you know, abstractly thinking about. And so that's really, it's really important. I mean, you can be a kind of quote unquote political person, but if you're not actually engaging in collective struggle, then it's kind of pointless. And so I think what's been interesting, uh, is how the ripples of Occupy Wall Street have opened space for these new forms of organization that you you didn't see before. So from the debt collective that I organized with to Sunrise, uh, to the rise of Democratic Socialists of America, DSA, I mean, of course, it's, that is an older group, but it was absolutely revitalized in, in uh, the aftermath of Occupy Wall Street. So what you see is people with lefty political ideas actually trying to enact them and engaging with the state, engaging with electoral politics. And in the United States, that's a lot. I mean, other countries have, you know, more dynamic political systems, have multiple parties, have left-wing parties. I mean, we are in a unique context in the United States where we have these two, we have a two-party winner-take-all system and figuring out how to engage with that and pull left is actually, you know, it's just uniquely um, challenging in many ways, but people are doing that and there's less of a split between kind of outside people-powered movements and inside political movements. I think we see people being a much more kind of intelligent about trying to weave those elements together.
1: I think it's, uh, it's so interesting. It's inspiring in a way to uh, look at the American politics <laughs> right now and also maybe in the last years. I mean, and you say you look at Europe and we have a different... Um, structure for 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 democracy and parliamentary democracy and uh, different party structure but at the same time right now it seems like um the the radical ideas and even looking and we can maybe come back to that more later on looking at these massive uh policy programs that are now rolled out by this uh, new president who everybody thought was like a a, a centrist that's (laughs) uh, It's it's an interesting moment in that sense and and, uh, connecting to to what you just said. But I would like to ask you, because the book that we read and just to introduce that to also the podcast listeners is is the book about democracy. Uh, And it says, uh, the title is Democracy May Not Exist, but we'll miss it when it's gone. And it really is a book about, I read it as a book where you really take a step back uh, and think about the (laughs) A number of a set of very very fundamental questions about how to think about who we are. Uh, yeah, and, and you uh, and you formulate these pairs uh, and, and inherent uh, conflicts in 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 democracy. And I was just wondering because I've been I've been, we've been discussing this book now over the last years, and I've been struggling with this book because it's just it's in a way the question is too simple (laughs) it's so simple what is democracy and uh it took me a while to uh, to understand what you're trying to do uh with the book and i'm not I i think i i think i understand it better now but i had to really because i'm also a person who comes from politics and you're when you do that you're so much further ahead always you're like how how to fix these problems with money in politics or how what to do about corruption or how to get more people involved but what was your thinking with like really taking this step back and asking these much more fundamental questions what made you want to do that uh
2: that's yeah. what, like i mean it's know. just who it's just who i am i suppose that, you know it's how my mind works. So I've always had this strong interest in philosophy. And philosophy is asking, you know, I think it's Isaiah Berlin who said, philosophy is asking childish questions, right? What is the most basic, obvious question, right? It's the just asking those why questions over and over, or in this case, the what is. So what is democracy? I mean, coming up in, in the United States, this word is just so laden with um, with meaning, and it's so misleading, right? I mean, again, to go back to the George W. Bush years and and the odds, you know, democracy, democracy, democracy. We're bringing democracy to Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, they hate us for our for our democratic freedoms. This this idea that you know somehow, um, you know, democracy was something that the United States just embodied, and this was this this principle, it, it was never critically interrogated and never really discussed. And then at the same time, going to a protest like Occupy Wall Street, and the protesters there are saying, well, no, this is what democracy looks like. That's the chant you would hear. So democracy was something that George W. Bush said was great, and my anarchist friends at Occupy Wall Street said was great. And so it just made me want to step back and say, okay, what what are we talking about when we talk about this term? And I'm someone who doesn't really, I don't know. I, I, I sort of tend to do this when there's something that I'm really um, engaged with. And so as I was getting more engaged with activism, I wanted to have that mental space to to critically reflect. I mean, I had written a book a few years earlier about the internet, which is also a sprawling and enormous topic. And I suppose my thinking there was, well, if I'm going to use the internet every day, I should know what it is I'm participating in. Um, But for me, you know, it's a compliment to the organizing. Organizing and activism, political campaigning is very reactive. It's very of the moment. What are the political opportunities in this moment? What can I win? Where can I advance an inch? You know, what is the emergency that I am responding to? By also writing the book at the same time, I was able to say, okay, yeah, what is the democratic horizon I'm thinking about? What are the words that I'm using and maybe taking for granted? Um, And so what uh, the book is structured, as you said, each chapter is a paradox or a tension. So... One chapter is about freedom and equality. Another chapter is about the present and the future, so this temporal tension. One chapter is about the local and the global, so this the spatial tension. And what I say in the preface is that, you know, I'm not talking about contradictions like Marx spoke of contradictions. Marx spoke of contradictions in capitalism, right? So the struggle between capital and labor, between the rich and the poor. Um, that he hoped would one day be resolved in communism, right? So these contradictions that propel us forward, but can be resolved. One day, you know, there could, could be a world where we have economic equality, where that tension, that contradiction between the rich and the poor is no longer there. And so I... You know, I'm very informed by Marxism, so I agree. I can imagine a world where there's not incredible wealth inequality, but I can't imagine a world without the tensions that I talk about in the book. We'll never resolve the tension between the local and the global, between the past and the future, <laughs> between uh, another one is inclusion and exclusion, figuring out who is in and who is out. And so what I try to do is unpack these tensions in a way to sort of remind myself and the reader of just why democracy is so hard. It is an inherently challenging thing because these tensions are at its heart and they are irresolvable, right? So our circumstances inform these tensions and maybe inflame them, but those tensions are always with us. Another thing that makes democracy hard is that it requires this philosophical view. It requires this abstract view because at the heart of democracy is a philosophical concept which is the people the demos is an abstraction it's not something that's just there like a king or a queen when we say we the people who is the we who are we and this has evolved over time it's going to continue to evolve in my you know i think if democracy has a future it will look very different than what we consider democracy to be and so i think in a way you actually have to take this big picture view if you want to talk about democracy because it's an inherently abstract philosophical undertaking. Um, And so to me, it actually is reflective of democracy's very nature.
0: At the same time, it's also very uh, concrete, as you point out. So I think (laughs) one of the key phrases of the book is uh, democracy is actually a verb. So it's something that you do. It's it's, uh, something that you live. Um, and another uh, text, I think, in the, the upcoming book, um, remake the world, is about the art of listening, or how listening is, is in a way, um, a very essential part of, of democracy. Connecting, I guess, in some way to Danny Allen's book about talking to strangers, so sort of where democracy begins, and so sort of in, in in that space. So, so I think that's for me also, was was a moving aspect of, of the book. Um, but but I read it as in a way as as Karen did, also as um, you lay out these um, well contradictions or these factors, but they are somehow not evident so if they are always there, but it's important. so that's also a later phrase in the book to um, to reimagine reimagine sort of how we want to live as a as a people and a collective self-rule, you need to go, you need to open the past and the future at the same time and in some way, I think that's that's what you did. So you, you, you opened up these barrels of, of, uh, of, of time or of, of essential uh, conflicts in how decisions are made. So if I found that interesting, um, the, the um, conflict versus consensus. So all these basic questions, um, that, that connect in some way um, to an anarchist view of the world. So if, because you, you go past this presentism and say, well, people, um, this could all be different and here are some of the options of how it could be different you don't lay out the answers you have a lot of questions um that that I find very um appealing in some way to to engage in a democratic conversation more than come with a program and
1: yeah maybe i maybe that's why i was uh, in the beginning a bit frustrated with the book because it's it's not a policy set of policy proposals that you can agree with or you know set aside but mm-hmm. it's really it's more mm-hmm. a socratic way of doing yeah. things it's like are the problems and work them out for yourself, and it's much more, uh, yeah, much much more demanding, I guess, uh, from for, I, on your side from the reader. So that's uh, yeah, so it's unusual. It's it's interesting how I I was well, interested yeah. in my own reaction to it in that sense.
2: It's interesting because I was consciously trying to do something different than the many books that do end with the policy proposals. I mean, especially yeah. again, in the US context, there's so many books. And the last chapter is, we need to get money out of politics. We need to, mm-hmm. you know, fix our gerrymandered political districts. In other words, make our our districts fair. We need to do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, I I feel as an organizer that I always feel frustrated by those books because I'm like, okay, well, the challenge is not knowing what we want to do. The policies are obvious. I mean, I have a list of policies. The problem is actually building the power, right? In other words, the real challenge and the thing that needs intellectual energy and needs resources is building the power to have the possibility of passing these policies or or changing the system. You know, I like solutions are a dime a dozen. Um, hmm. The other thing... Related to that in the Socratic method, you know, the Socratic approach is that, I guess for me, there's this question of, you know, what, yeah, what does democracy demand of the demos? And so in the film that goes with the book, what is democracy? I end up, you know, turning that idea of Plato, Plato, you know, is a, is a kind of touchstone in the film, his Republic. And of course, Plato famously says, you know, well, we need a class of philosophy, philosophers of guardians who will run the city. Because they love wisdom, <laughs> and you know, my i my view is that democracy actually demands we all think philosophically that the demos think and deliberate and um, wrestle with these tensions and you know come to ideas on their own. It's not just about telling them, oh, this is the ten point plan. This is what you should think. Get in line, <laughs> and so um my i suppose the book reflects that political conviction and it's a conviction i have as an organizer as well organizing isn't telling people do this right i mean that's part of it is saying hey these are some ideas this is the most more strategic thing we could do but it really is about cultivating an empower cultivating an ability to think critically and empowering people to um, to think for themselves and to reflect critically on the world so feel like it's also just part of my political and educational ethos, um, is that we have to move beyond just sort of, yeah, like oversimplifying things or just spoon feeding people or whatever. Um, but that makes things more difficult in many ways as well. And it relates to the listening that, that George brought up because, um, I think we put too much emphasis on sort of the speaker and people having the solutions and this and that, and not the, the actual aspect of dialogue, which involves also listening to people and having a bit of humility uh, in our politics.
0: That's why I found it so interesting. Maybe you can work through one aspect specifically that relates in some way to Occupy Wall Street to clarify also for, to go ahead. So, if, Because I think you have solutions actually that, that mm-hmm. are in, in the book, so if, uh, that, that you hint at. So if um, but but these, it's such this interesting back and forth. So the, the 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 way the politics are framed now, as you say, or, or it's as a discursive field is um, in conflict. So if you have different uh, arguments about the same uh, issue, and then you have elections to um, work out what's how to go ahead. And, and there's another model, which is consensus model, uh, which mm-hmm. is more the Occupy Wall Street model. You you work together. Mm-hmm. To come in agreement of how how to move ahead, which is which is which is different. Uh, but you but you sort of say this is also problematic. You, you say so if maybe maybe you can elaborate on these in, in, inherent conflicts. But there is there is a nucleus of a different poly- of, sort of a different system. I, I I think that's that's both different in media and and in, in parliamentary um, mm-hmm. democratic practice. Um, maybe we can work through <laughs> some of these contradictions yeah. uh, to. get to a a lighter spot um in in, in that question
2: yeah it's funny i had i i I had forgotten that that was a chapter i was like what are the contradictions or tensions that i even (laughs) write about um because i you know i sort of process things and put all of my energy into whatever the book is or the film or whatever it is i'm working on and then the minute i've finished it it like exits my brain but yeah there is a chapter on consensus or conflict and this is you know, one of the paradoxes of democracy, right? It depends on, um, both. I mean, it, it is about a kind of adversarial relationship. So we have, you know, parties that are, are fighting for advantage. We have classes that are locked in, um, uh, conflict, but also it's about forming consensus and forming agreement and, um, and, you know, finding ways for people to, uh, Forge a kind of middle ground, and um, and so there are different asp- there are different spaces in which sort of conflict is tuned up, turned up, or consensus is um, is emphasized. And I guess you know this that chapter sort of argues that one is there's no panacea there that we just have to have that. Again, we have to live in that tension. So Occupy Wall Street famously ran by consensus. The idea was that you know, we weren't gonna just have majority rule. It wasn't gonna be a situation where, okay, 51% of people vote and that's it. That, that means the other 49% are effectively disenfranchised, they lose. I um, mean, instead we will sit in our assembly and talk it out until we reach a consensus. But that also enabled, what that did was it enabled the small minority of people to actually derail things. <laughs> so it was this sort of utopian idea that then would backfire and become very frustrating because what if there were a few intractable folks who just said, no, 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 I refuse to agree. Um, and and there are actually examples where consensus is used in really problematic ways on the global stage. For example, um, in discussions right now around, I just interviewed somebody about uh, the COVID vaccine and intellectual property rights. And at the WTO, you know, there are certain international trade organizations that also run by consensus. And what that means is that, you know, one vote from the United States can derail <laughs> uh, an egalitarian an initiative that would have democratic consequences. So in this case, distributing COVID vaccines without Um, intellectual property controls. So so consensus is not always such a progressive thing. I think it's important to kind of flag that. Um, But what I, you know, I was working that out. I think that chapter was important to me because as I was figuring out how to help build this debtors union, the debt collective, it was really thinking about how do we handle, how do we handle conflict? And, and realizing that there are certain moments when, you know, people, or groups really do have interests that cannot just be reconciled, right? There are moments when you are you are in an adversarial political position. You are not you're, there is no middle ground. If you're talking about, you know, a community, for example, that wants to protect its water supply and a corporation that wants to get rid of its, you know, toxic waste, you know, you're not going to come to a consensus about this. (laughs) That's just, that's a conflict. And, you know, one side needs to win the rights of the community to free water needs uh, to clean water needs to prevail over the corporation that wants to pollute. Um, So that um, I, you know, and I think that's That chapter in a way is me sort of challenging, I think, some of the anarchist spirit that was there at Occupy Wall Street and saying, you know, we can't paper over these real conflicts and we can't fetishize consensus. We need to figure out when we actually do need to engage in conflict and where conflict will push us forward. Um, but it's tricky. I mean, this is, in a way, I can see why the book is unsatisfying, because it doesn't just come down and say, okay, this is exactly, these are the precepts. This is when conflict is useful. This is when you can actually have a hope of having consensus. There has to be that flexibility. Um, um, who
0: needs that, uh, that uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Yeah,
2: I mean, I think it's really challenging. It's challenging in a group because I think it is healthier, you know, as I run this political organization. It's, it's healthy to aspire to consensus as much as possible, but you need to have methods for dealing with conflict for when something is adversarial um, should that arise, right? Like you need to have rules and guidelines. So, okay, this is this, we are reaching an intractable <laughs> issue. We are not coming to harmony on this. Here are the procedures. Now we're going to have a, have a vote the majority is going to win because this is a conflict and we need, we need a method to resolve this conflict. And um, it's not, you know, I don't think that there's a hard and fast rule for every context, but it's, it's one of these things where you kind of can't, you can't just come on one side or the other.
1: So um, to build on that, um, I have a question with regards to, so your book is opening up all these questions, all these paradoxes, and you say, and I agree with that fundamentally, that there's this, lack of participation or there's this um, like the democracy we have is very like low energy or low activity or it's it's i mean we vote if you live in one of our countries you get to vote in in elections but there are big parts of society that are just excluded from from democracy like the workplace or schools it's but it's also a problem that people don't spend the time they don't engage they don't you know they don't they they don't um, spend their time in organizations or NGOs or in volunteering they just you know they're passive (laughs) and and they don't put in the time and what do you think what's I I was interested in in your essay on how maybe debt in itself and the this version of capitalism that we live in is 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 uh, passivizing or is 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 uh, creating passive citizens but could you talk a little bit about what you think the obstacles to participation and to being more active uh, as a citizens really are is it human nature or is it more material conditions or what's the what's what's stopping us
2: what's stopping us yeah um it's a big question i don't know i you mean know. i think that <laughs> I do think that the political, social, and economic structures that I live under in the United States do encourage a depoliticization of the, the the public, right? I mean, on a basic level, I mean, wages have stagnated in the US for the last 50 years. So the average person has to work so hard to survive, to keep a roof over their head. So I don't, I mean, I have nothing but sympathy for people who are not active citizens when they're working two jobs and those jobs are really stressful and demeaning and they're, you know, and then they have to rush home and take care of their families and there's no child care help. There's no support for taking care of elderly loved ones. I mean, so people are overworked and burned out. And certainly the problem of debt is part of that because, again, as wages have stagnated and social services have been slashed more and more people have been forced to debt finance their basic needs. So people are struggling um, to make these monthly debt payments that sometimes, you know, for some people, their college loan payments in the U.S. are $1,200 a month, right? I mean, you're basically, it's like you're paying rent twice. Um, and that is, I mean, it was certainly known at the beginning that this would have a depoliticizing effect. So, for example, if you go back to the early um, 70s, Ronald Reagan, before he became president, worked very hard to impose tuition and student debt on students at the University of California because he basically said, he said this, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, if they have to pay, they'll stop picking up these protest signs, right? Like make them pay and they'll quiet down. And um, and so there was certainly a sense that by burying the public in debt, there would be, a, there would just be a, 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 the consequence would be that people would be less politically active, less likely to make demands of demands for redistribution. Ironically, the poorer they got, the less <laughs> empowered they would be to make demands of redistribution. Uh, so I think that is is part of it. Um, I, I don't know. I think there's something... I kind of want to say something different, though, right now, which is that I think there's actually something really problematic, though, about depending on people who have activist personalities to be the main political force. Like, you know, I... Mm-hmm. I I respect people who don't want to do politics and activism all the time and who care about other things, who care about, you know, quality of life or gardening or being with their families. Right. Um, And so I this is why I think in the book I'm interested in uh, sortition and in citizens assemblies and in calling up, you know, in 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 basically making. Uh, forcing force I'm like talk about coercion, but forcing people yeah. to participate through random selection so that we actually get a broader uh, a broader uh, sense of where people's values are and priorities are because there's some you know I think people who tend to be activists who tend to be very political, you know are uh, we're not necessarily reflective of the the mainstream values. we tend to be more ideological and you know I think, then what happens, too, is there's this idea of like, oh, well, you, only a certain type of person is into politics, right? that's It's almost like it's your subculture. You're an activist. And so this is what you do. And I think it needs to be something that's more generalized. So I think there should be the creation of structures, you know, that, yeah, that create a kind of... You know, regular duty that goes beyond voting, but where you participate in the running of your society. I think there's lots of evidence that that's a pretty healthy thing to do, given you know the way some citizens assemblies have played out in other countries, um, and you know that it there should be a kind of sense of civic duty, um, and there should be structures to facilitate that, so that it isn't just uh, a question of oh well, you know, yeah, what is your uh, what you know, what is your personal preference, you know, into so leaving politics to the people who just love politics? I don't know. There's something that seems off about that to me. <laughs> I just think.
1: No, and I think in the book, I mean, it's also, the, the, there's also this very important argument that it's, uh, if you want to, I mean, there, we do have a big problem at this stage of, I don't know late capitalism with money in politics and corruption, and it's also a way to inoculate, in a way, um, political system to randomly select people because then you they're, they're not dependent or beholden to um, yeah. uh, donors or parties or uh, anybody. They just uh, fulfill their duty for for a time and then go back to whatever they did before. So.
0: I the incentives would
2: be the the incentives would be different because they wouldn't want to be maintaining their role as an office holder. Yeah. They wouldn't be yeah. needing to raise money for their next election. Right. All that, uh, yeah, I think that would have beneficial effects as well. But certainly, I mean, I think you know if you are, and uh, you know, sometimes I think that people who tend to be activists, you know, we just. Like we're willing to spend a lot of time in meetings or we have a lot of time to spend in meetings, right? We have a certain mm-hmm. amount of privilege so we're able to devote the hours and the energy to whatever our causes are. And so that is, you know, that's that also creates all sorts of inequalities that I think a truly democratic society would try to to address and rebalance.
0: And building on that, have you thought about the role of uh, technology in that? I mean, there's a lot of debate about Deliberative democracy, which is basically um, liquefying the, the mm-hmm. liberation, the decision process, um, and liquefying is also the word for liquid democracy. So, sort of, or not the word, but it's sort of relating to a different form of democracy where, which is not sortition, but where you sort of give your uh, vote specifically to specific issues to an expert or somebody who represents you in this specific issue. But there's also the 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 more radical approach, and I would be interested how you sort of continue to work in technology or thinking about technology, the the most radical approach would be, or that I've heard so far, is um, that you could um, constantly, that that you have an automized representative who always represents you, basically, who knows how you would vote on gun control, maybe you're for gun control, but you're pro uh, uh, ecological issues. So so that would be like a constant deliberation process, but facilitated by technology. So it would, Take out in a way all middlemen, which
1: would take w- out elections then,
0: or yeah, just its decisions. So, yeah. I mean, the mm-hmm. elections are not constitutive to <laughs> democracy in any no, way. No, no, it just... so, so, it would take away elections, but it would be like a con- constant um, t- decision-making process that wouldn't involve necessarily you being able uh, or necessitate you to be present all the time, but 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 it would give you the models sort of or the energy that you are. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Who counts in a way? So, if, I mean, but the question is more abstract. So, if, do, you, do you have you can, can continue to work on thinking about how technology could feature into enhancing uh, or, or democratizing democracy? Actually.
2: I mean, I've written a lot about technology since I wrote my book, The People's Platform, which is a kind of basic political economy of the internet. And I I write more about just, you know, I I do write less about how technology could be used for good and more about the ways it's being used uh, to concentrate wealth and power and the way that the underlying business model ultimately drives the technology we get, you know. So, um, you know, it's interesting. Right now we see technology being deployed in lots of ways that are very destructive for democracy, and and not just on the level of sort of Facebook and misinformation and the things that we hear about. Um, But for example, in the United States, um, there have been a lot of stories recently, and, and one actually connects directly with the debt collectives work, where the government builds its websites purposefully so they don't work so that people cannot access the benefits they're entitled to. In other words, you mm-hmm. keep people off of the welfare rolls by making it so they cannot even apply for benefits that they have the right to get, right? So they, they, make, the in, they make the website broken on purpose to em, enforce austerity. And I think this is, you know, that's where we're at. That's where we're really at. They, the question of like how we would then use technology to enhance democracy um, is... You know, it's it's it just seems utopian in that context. I guess for me, I'm there's something I I don't know enough about the examples you're given. I'm intuitively, kind of instinctually, kind of skeptical um, because I don't think I think what's interesting to me about the idea of uh, sortition or you know, for example, the citizens assemblies as they've been used in like Ireland, you know, it wasn't really about every single person having a proxy or voting, right? It was about a kind of body standing in for the whole. So, you know, a few hundred people who were representative of the Demos, and then they're kind of deliberating on behalf of everyone. Um, and people are able to follow that deliberation. So, for example, in Ireland, the Citizens Assembly that was talking about whether or not to amend the Constitution to allow for abortion. Um, and I think, there's something, um, I think there's something interesting about that. I think also the thing about uh, getting rid of elections and having se- selections, having these Random <laughs> groups of citizens called up is that that's the consensus side, right? Because what ideally what these groups of randomly selected citizens are doing is they're trying to find a consensus. So I wouldn't want to totally abandon elections because elections are about conflict, right? They're they're parties who have different views contesting for power, and I think that's important too. So I guess I would kind of love to see a situation where in the United States, you know, we had the Senate and maybe the Senate was an elected body and then Congress was a selected body. Like, let's have, let's have two houses and, and they're, uh, they're peopled in different ways through different means. Um, I think digital technology, I think we can use digital technology in smart ways that are analogous to how the ancient Greeks use their limited technologies. They, you know, so, you know, in Obviously, the uh, Greeks were not perfectly democratic. Ancient Athens had lots of problems, but they were very creative about using what limited tools they had so, you know, marble and bronze to create tools that allowed them to randomly select citizens to participate. And so, I think, you know, what we could do with digital tools is use them to call people up to deliberate in person and to really randomly select people to make sure it's representative, um, to make sure it's you know, not being corrupted in any way. I think we, you know, can use technology to foster sort of in-person discussions. I'm, I'm just kind of skeptical about automating it. Um, and also, the idea of like digitally iterating decision making. I don't know. I maybe I'm just old-fashioned. I think we need people. Um, to to get in rooms together and to listen <laughs> and to learn together, but I don't think it has to be everyone. I think it could be a representative body that's doing that on behalf of different communities.
1: I, I think the Sorry, Irish, I don't know if that makes uh, sense
2: because I, I'm uh, because it's a little hypothetical, but. <laughs>
1: No, it's super interesting. I, I tend to I think I agree with with, with you what's left out with uh, Georg's idea is this the, the deliberate deliberation de- what happens in the process with with the debate or with a discussion. but could you just say a few words about this Irish example, which I find super interesting and I, I think many people don't know about it how that was uh, what the issue was about and how it was um, how it was um, how that experiment played out. Yeah, about the abortion issue, right?
2: It started actually, the seeds for it were planted after the 2008-2009 financial crisis. and as in so many countries, the people lost sort of faith in the government. So you know Ireland, we all know, was really hit hard by that financial crisis. And in a kind of desperate measure, an attempt to restore trust, they started to experiment with the idea of these citizens' assemblies. And again, what, what it means is calling up a small body of people. So 100 people, 200 people who are generally sort of representative of the public writ large. So they represent them in terms of age, geography, um, gender, ability or disability, etc. And those people then discuss some important issue. And, and and it's not just discussion. they're also sort of learning. So there are presentations from various experts in various groups. So this ended up what what there were these assemblies ended up being tasked with a few topics, and one was the very controversial issue of whether or not to amend the Constitution to allow abortion. And I think it's quite interesting because ultimately, the outcome was that the Irish people decided by plebiscite, right? So there was a vote. They decided to amend the Constitution. And, uh, and so this issue that seemed so impossible, I mean, what seems more controversial than abortion in Ireland has actually been resolved in a progressive direction. And so you know, it's interesting to contrast that to the vote in Brexit, uh, the vote in the UK over Brexit, because that was also a plebiscite, right? So people just voted yes or no. And there was obviously uh, there's been an immense amount of suffering as the result, because, you know, a lot of people felt they didn't understand what they had voted on. Maybe they wanted to have a protest vote, you know, whereas uh, whereas in Ireland, people generally accepted the outcome of the abortion vote because there had been this deliberation by the Citizens Assembly. So people had spent months following the debate, feeling like there was some Democratic deliberation happening and so when there was this controversial vote it was like okay the people have decided. Now I think that's a very interesting model but obviously you know we when we think about applying it to other things like climate change or workers rights there has to be power behind it. <laughs> you can't just have citizens assemblies on things and then like Oh, well, the citizens assembly decided that we should curb emissions, but well, we're not going to actually do it. Right. We don't, we're not going to invest the resources necessary. I mean, it's, it's actually in a way amending a constitution to allow the possibility of abortion is easy. It doesn't cost anything. Right. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, things get more high. difficult. Yeah. Things get more difficult when you then are like, and now we need trillions of dollars of investment in green infrastructure, right? Like when, or we need to tax the rich, then you're going to have a fight on your hands.
0: Yeah, that would have been my uh, objection, I guess, to to your argument, well taken, that that there are large issues that are problematic, but that's exactly what happened actually in France, what you just described. So they have a citizen assembly, and then it gets into this legislative process, and it gets chopped down, and basically it gets into sort of the old machine again. So that's a bit weird and problematic, especially in this topic that um, all of us... (laughs) Sort of are super interested in and it's 47 minutes into the conversation so it's pretty late so sort of, that we talk about climate change but um but it's also very sort of well yeah. placed in your book so sort of, and we should maybe take the rest of the time to talk about that or i would be interested in your yeah. sense, sense of future and 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 how democracy can encapsulate f- future but but maybe before that so sort of, um, it's really the problem between deliberation and decision making as you say so sort of, so sort of you can deliberate whatever and then you yeah. how, how can you facilitate a, a democratic decision making process that is sort of open to, to, to what has been discussed. I think that that is maybe
2: mm-hmm.
0: the proposition in technology that that could be facilitated in, in, a, in a much mm-hmm. more, much less interest driven way.
2: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And then there's the question then of, you know, The power problem, right? So exactly that. You've deliberated, you've made a a decision, but do you have the power to implement it? (laughs) And, you know, a lot of the major, I think this, this issue of investment is really essential, right? A lot of the big challenges that face us in the 21st century require resources to solve right? We cannot solve the issue of climate change without a huge investment and a huge redistribution of resources from rich countries that have caused the climate crisis disproportionately to poorer countries who are suffering the consequences. It makes me think of a brilliant line uh, from Martin Luther King's book, uh, um, It's Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community, I think is what it's called. And he says, he points out that you know, the civil rights movement in the US was astonishing in its impact, right? And that it it ended Jim Crow and the formal um, dehumanization of Black Americans. But he he points out that that actually the cost was next to nothing. It doesn't cost anything to integrate Mm. a lunch counter, right? In fact, businesses are going to make more money, right? You're going to let more people in the door. So it doesn't... It, it really didn't cost capitalism anything on some level to abandon that form of overt racism. And he says the fights ahead are really you know, expensive and going to be much more challenging because they require a massive investment if we want good jobs if we want good schools. (laughs) And in fact, you know, Martin Luther King was already saying if we want clean air and water, right, if we want a safe environment, this is going to require resources. And so he was already saying in 1967, get ready, because the next battles are going to be even harder to win. And I think that we're still we're in that, right, where it's like, yeah, that there are certain things we can we can kind of Aspire to these victories that don't cost much, uh, but it's these questions that are gonna, that where we are going to be up against the sort of centers of corporate power, and you know, saying to these billionaires like Jeff Bezos, who is about to be a trillionaire, you have to give up some of your wealth. I mean, these are these are you know enormous fights, and that's part of uh, that's where we're at, and that's why questions of deliberation and decision making are just part of it. The other side of it is how do you how do you build the people power, the movements, the organization that can engage in the class conflict that's necessary to, uh, to, to change um, those dynamics and you know, distribute resources and not just redistribute, but actually change the model of distribution, change the models of ownership fundamentally so we can address these problems of inequality and direct investment in democratic ways
1: um yeah
0: so to the yeah so to the point of climate change i think it's interesting to understand what you point out in the book so the fundamental question is is democracy able to deal with the question of climate change and and how does it need to change and and i think some some would say it's on the decision making side so sort of, that that's the mm-hmm. problem or or in power side interest side but you have a more fundamental approach in some way that then again needs to be implemented in decision making do you think it's, uh, there needs to be a different time horizon or there needs to be a different, uh, we need to think differently about maybe also one person, one vote, actually. So if you need to, you basically, if you take climate change seriously or take the future seriously or take the future into the process of democracy, it changes a lot, not everything, but but a lot. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can expand on your thinking and, and, and how, how democracy just would need to change on, process, or sort of on a conceptual level to, to adapt to, to, yeah. to the challenge of climate change.
2: Yeah, I think this relates to my sort of underlying sense that democracy is ever evolving. So the demos, the question of who we are, who we the people are, is expanding. So, you know, at the founding of the United States, it was just a small subset of property owning white men. <laughs> and we've expanded that at first. Then all men, regardless of their income or wealth, could vote. Then, you know, formerly enslaved people were enfranchised and women. And I think... And in that chapter, I say, well, what you know, the Demos, if we're going to have a, if we're going to have a habitable world for future generations, then actually we need to figure out how to include the the unborn generations to come in our democratic deliberations. And we need to expand the time horizon. And I think it's not quite so crazy when you think about the fact that actually um, in a way, People who live before us are enfranchised when you, you know, if you live in a society like I do, you know, where we fetishize the Constitution, I mean, that's basically giving a small subset of dead guys an incredible vote, right? They have this outsized vote um, over the people who live in the present Meanwhile, the people of the future have nothing. They have no say. They have no seat at the table. So I think it's, you know, this question of democracy's relationship to time is really interesting. I think democracy also, you know, is something that kind of tends towards a slow time horizon. These questions of deliberation, decision-making, like they are best when they're kind of slow and you have the time to do it. And I think it's, you know, I think, as citizens, we need to have time to do democracy. This goes back to the question of like, why are, why is the public kind of apathetic? Again, because they're working two jobs. They're, they're, they're stressed. They don't have time to participate politically. So that, that's actually a real problem when we're facing a climate crisis as we are today, where we're just, we literally only have a few years, right? Like we're running out of time. It's an emergency. Um, But uh, yeah, so I do think there's a, you know, this fundamental philosophical challenge to us, right, to figure out how we we, we incorporate these other time registers into our democratic practices. I guess I, the one thing I do want to say is that um, there is sometimes this idea, even among progressives, though, that uh, the problem, the, the the climate crisis is actually caused by democracy, right? In other words, it's the people who won't give up their consumer habits. And um, and so what we really need is almost like an enlightened dictator who will impose a, a climate uh, friendly regime from on high. And I guess my my response to that is just like it's never going to happen. There is no there is no global power structure that's going to impose sustainability from above. Um, and also the fact is, even in the United States, which has been the sort of epicenter of climate misinformation and where fossil fuel companies have just worked and so hard and spent hundreds of millions of dollars. if you the polls show that the average American and a overwhelming majority of Americans want action on climate change despite all of this effort <laughs> to confuse people and to politicize this issue. I mean Americans the average American says you know that they would sacrifice economic growth for ecological stability. So I think the, the the problem here is definitely you know a lack of democracy. It's the fact that uh, a handful of really rich corporations, fossil fuel corporations, and you know the politicians that they basically bribe in Washington D.C. have been able to sabotage. Um, environmental legislation that's generally very, very popular, right? So the problem to me is the lack of democracy. You know, that's what's driving this. And they've sabotaged investments in sustainable energy. They've obviously, you know, again, spent, uh, they've been able to to sort of poison the media ecosystem with their lies about uh, greenhouse gas emissions as the source of global heating, um, and so, this is. I think it's just very important to not blame this dilemma on democracy and to recognize the anti-democratic uh, attributes that are driving it. Um, and you know, we are. It's interesting to talk about this right now because we are in it, it, talking during a week where there has been a kind of historic rollout of a climate plan from Joe Biden. It doesn't go nearly far enough, uh, but he, you know, is. Um, talking about investing huge sums in uh, uh, sort of uh, mitigation programs and uh, civilian conservation corps. So that sort of echoes the New Deal. And he wouldn't be doing this, you know, if it wasn't for the Sunrise Movement, to to be honest, right, which is a, a new movement that's led by young people in the US. And so I think that that you know, it doesn't go far enough by far. Uh, and the United States is the richest country in the world and should be investing, you know, many more trillions of dollars into this. But I think it is a testament to, to grassroots organizing and the fact that people um, got, um, you know, people got active around this issue and pushed a politician who is incredibly centrist. And definitely, you know, 10 years ago, we would not have thought he would be uh, proposing um, such uh massive uh, massive government investment in this issue. So maybe that is the little silver lining of practical hope.
1: Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I think that's maybe a good way or place also to wrap up this conversation. But just to add to what you said, because it's, I think it's such an interesting moment uh, with these massive, uh, I mean, as you say, I mean, you could wish for more and it's not perfect, but it is something quite big happening Right now, and something that many people, including myself, didn't believe would 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 happen even with a a democratic precedent and I think i mean to your point with the sunrise movement movement and where we started this conversation, the idea is coming out of occupy maybe or the uh, reaction to the financial crisis and but it's also is it not a consequence of um organizing for people to vote to go vote i mean if it wasn't mm-hmm. for the very very Fucking slim majority in the Senate, it wouldn't be possible to uh, get this legislation through your Congress. So it's also, I mean, it's ideas, but it's also what you talked about, just getting people involved in the democratic process. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, I think that's at- in a way. I mean, yeah, in spite of everything, in spite of all these efforts to defranch- enfranchise people and to get people to be disengaged, then. Um, enough people were engaged so to, to make this possible. Yeah, there's to, a- no, hold on to here. Yeah, no, I
2: think there's that yeah. that is, a, and you know, there were people, especially when you think about it was these sen- two Senate victories in Georgia, which is yeah. a state with an incredible history of racist voter suppression, and activists have been trying to counter that in for, intensely, you know, for the last decade. And their point, I think, is something that's really important they said, you know, the problem is not that Georgia is right wing or conservative. And I believe this because that's where I grew up. I grew up in Athens, Georgia, actually. Mm. The point is that the power structure is organized in such a way that it suppresses that progressive politics Mm. and only, and enables, you know, a Republican minority to rule. In other words, Georgia didn't go from red to blue, from Republican to Democrat. It was finally able to express (laughs) its Democratic character. Um, And so that, I think that, and I feel like that's, that's exactly right. I think, so there is, there's lots of hope because I do think that there is a progressive majority in the United States. Um, and that we are witnessing a kind of what might be the last gasp of this, you know, desperate attempt to hold on to minority rule. and uh, But it what strikes me as sort of sad is that you're... You know, we're talking and you're not an American. And yet these two Senate victories have such implications for the world, right? (laughs) Like whether or not a few thousand people turn out to vote in Georgia has such uh, huge consequences. That's just incredibly undemocratic when you think about democracy as something that should have a global horizon. Um, And I think it, uh, it, it just makes it all the more urgent that organizers in the United States actually show up, right? Because... Uh, what happens in this problematic country really do resonate it really does resonate far and wide. Um, but I think there are I think there are some I think there are lots of hopeful signs right now. Uh, and I'm feeling, you know I'm feeling like we have an incredible window with the democratic control of the Congress, the Senate, and the presidency. And that this is just absolutely not a moment to relent and to let our guard down. And it's less a moment for these big philosophical questions on some ways and more a moment for pragmatically trying to figure out, like, what can we win? You know, can we in this moment increase the rights of workers, to organize? Can we win debt cancellation? Can we win a job, you know, uh, a government investment in good jobs? Can we make the climate policies that Biden has laid out even more robust? I mean, this is a moment, I think, in the next year, a year and a half, to just really push from the left for everything that we can get. Um, because you never know what's going to happen next.
0: Mm. Astra, in that sense, uh, and, um, let's remake the world. and That's why we had you on the podcast. For It's no time for doomism. It's uh, time for optimism and action. Um, I, I do agree. Um, thank you for the conversation and for your inspiring uh, ideas in all of your books. And the new one is out um, in May, I think, Remake the World, by Astra Taylor. Thank
2: you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.